0: You're listening to Drisha V'Chakira, the Drisha Chavruta podcast. Welcome to our Beit Midrash. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Drisha's Chabrutha podcast. My name is Devorah Steinmetz, and I'm here again today with uh, my colleagues and chavrutas. Sam Liebens. Yes.
1: Sweet Blanchard. Hi. Glad to be here again.
0: I'm glad to be learning with you again today. So in our first podcast, we uh, looked at a story about a um, Hasid who built a gatehouse, um, and um, the prophet Eliyahu, a larger prophet, who um, after the Hasid, the pious person, built this gatehouse, Eliyahu stopped talking with him. And um, I thought today we would look at another story, Um, there's actually many stories in the Talmud where Eliyahu frequently uh, hangs out with somebody, and then at a certain point, because of something that happens or something that the person did Eliyahu stops um, talking with that person. Um, so we chose a story actually from the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Talmud of the Land of Israel um, about Eliyahu um, who stops uh, talking with someone and where the term uh, Hasid a uh, pious person comes up again in this context. Um, so I'll, I'll read the story and then, uh, and then we'll talk about it. So um, the, the text is from um, Talmud Yerushalmi Tractate Trumot. Chapter 8, halacha 4. And it starts with a breita. I'll tell over the breita in translation, and then I'll read the story in the original. So the breita talks about um, people who are traveling along, groups of people who are traveling along on the road. um, Non-Jews meet up with them, and the non-Jews say to them, give us one of you, and we will kill that person. And if you refuse to hand over somebody for us to kill, we will kill all of you. And the Baita says that even if all of them are killed, lo nefesh achat They may not hand over a single um, life, a single Jewish life. On the other hand, the Baita continues, um, if the non-Jews specify a particular person to be handed over, like Sheva ben Bichri, Sheva ben Bichri is a, is a character from Book of Samuel, um, if they designate a person like Sheba ben Bichri, then they should hand over that person and the group of people should not be killed so that's the text that um, is brought in the Yerushalmi and then the Yerushalmi continues um, after a, a short discussion of it the Yerushalmi continues with the following story <laughs> <laughs> Ula Bar Koshev Tavatei Malchuta Arak v'azil leh l'lod l'gabe Rabbi ben Levi Ula Bar was wanted by the government he ran away and he came to Lod where, uh, which was the, the town of Rabbi Shua ben Levi. Atun ve'atun medinta, <speaking> emulahen, in late atun yehevun le'ilan, anan machrivan medinta. So the government officials came and they surrounded the, the town and they said to the people in the town, if you don't hand him over, we will destroy the town. Salaka be Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, ufeisei v'yehevei long. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi went to this the person who was wanted, to Ulabar Khoshav, and he spoke with him, convinced him, and he handed him over to the authorities. Now the story continues. So it happened that until that point, um, Elijah um, regularly would reveal himself to Ravishuvan Levi, but after this incident, he no longer revealed himself to him. So Rabbi Shuvan Levi uh, fasted a number of fasts, and finally uh, Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, revealed himself to him. Amarle, but here's what Elijah said. He said, He said, Am I supposed to reveal myself to people who hand other people over? Amarle, Rabbi Levi said to him, Didn't I act in accordance with the traditional teaching? Amarle the Mishnah of Hasidim. So Eliyahu said to him, "But is this the Mishnah of Hasidim?" Sam, see.
1: Well, one of the things that interests me immediately is that he chooses that he's able to bring Eliyahu by fasting. In other words, the relationship is not cut off because he did something uh, that that Eliyahu doesn't fully endorse. He's able to f- to to fast and bring Eliyahu. And then there, that conversation takes place between them as to why haven't you been coming and what did that mean? Um, but the relationship doesn't end. So I think that's one thing to put on the table, that the, whatever the relationship is between the teacher, in this case, the, the religious adept, and, and Eliyahu and Navi, okay, that relationship has a life of its own, I think. Uh, and I'm not sure what, how that relates to the notion of where does Mishnah and fit into that otherwise ongoing relationship that's caught also by the fasting that he does. That question was occurring to me.
2: So because I'm um, naturally contrarian, um, I'd always read the Gemara that way, but now uh, spe- specifically because you suggested it, um, I want to suggest an alternative. Okay. So so your suggestion is the, the relationship between Yashub and Levi and Eliyahu wasn't irreparably damaged um, he fasted his fasts and and did whatever it was, this self rectification procedure. And at the end Eliab comes back to him and they get back on, you know but it's at least a possible reading, isn't it? That he fasts all these fasts and Elijah comes back, but Elijah only comes back to tell him uh, I'm not gonna hang out with you anymore. So so the rectification process achieves something namely um, he's no longer left in the dark by, by his, his prophetic friend who has abandoned him instead the prophetic friend appears to him to tell him "Why oh, I don't want to hang out with you anymore right? but on your reading a much more optimistic reading um, Elijah's return signifies uh, repair, a repair no I'm not original. really saying <laughs> that it signifies repair okay. what <laughs> I'm
1: saying is that the nature of the relationship Is such whether or not it can how it continues or not. The nature of the relationship is such that this person can do something that brings Eliyahu. I'm looking for the common denominator. What is it about fasting that brings Eliyahu? That is also captured by the notion that if I don't pass somebody else over to the authorities, that that also makes him a friend of mine. So, what occurs to me, whether or not the relationship continues or not. What occurs to me is that both of them have a certain disregard for the ordinary self-interest that's part of this world. Um, One case has to do with I eat because I need to take care of myself, but also because I enjoy it, I want to participate. And the Bishu Ben Levi is quite capable of saying, that doesn't matter to me. I act as if, like on Yom Kippur, I act as if. It does not really matter to me to eat. I transform myself almost into a kind of angelic state. The same thing, I think, is f- happening when, when he's being asked to pass somebody... to say, I will not pass anybody over. There's a fundamental act of what I would call sort of fearless spiritual resistance mm. to d- the demands of reality. Elio represents that messianic voice that demands this kind of spiritual resistance to the ordinary demands. So I don't know whether the relationship gets repaired, but I was looking for mm. that comment. I see, over. so it's just a paraphrase to ma- just a paraphrase, to make sure I've understood,
2: the suggestion is there's a similarity between um, the cause of Elijah's not appearing anymore and the thing that brings him back. Whether it brings him back for good or not is not relevant. And the similarity is the failure that caused him to stop coming was a failure to pass himself, uh, pass over him, himself and his self-interests. Ben Levi's self-interest was aligned with, with turning this man over um, and he didn't pass over his self-interest to this level of, of Mishnah Hasidah, the law of the, of the pious person but when he shows himself willing to fast, he shows himself specifically to be willing to pass over his own
1: self-interest, and that's what brings Elijah back. I may have spoken too quickly. I'm not sure self-interest in the ordinary sense is at stake. Your connection to the material, sensuous worlds is at stake. That's, that is connected to self-interest mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it could simply be that you step away from it. You step away from the things that people who live, and not just me, but people who live, in a world of sensuous reality with pleasures and pains and needs, they act in a particular way. And it's perfectly sensible and okay for them to say, why should we all die if we can hand over this one person who's been mentioned? But a person who's engaged in a form of spiritual resistance to those demands will refuse to do that in any case, the way martyrs refuse to go along. They die rather than do the the smart thing. And fasting has something in common with that because it goes on as if we weren't tied into that kind of
0: what, what does that say about our responsibility toward t- t- to others? In other words, th- there's more than three players here, right? There, there's the government officials, there's the Rabbi Shoban Levy, there's the person uh, you know, who sought asylum uh, in Rabbi Levy's town, but there's also the townspeople. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm wondering, um, according to your reading, right, what does that say, you know, what one, one might think of you know, martyrs or spiritual resistors, um as kind of living in their own world where the consequences are consequences except for themselves. Um, but here, not handing over this person would have consequences not only for Sher and Levi, uh, but for the entire town. so so I'm wondering you know' just sort of a, you know take your thought further. How do you see that um, does does a Hasid live simply uh, in their own world or is a Hasid expected as well to have um, a certain responsibility toward toward the people around him or her? how 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 how, how do you folks read that?
2: So wh- what exactly do you mean? I, are you saying um, on on Sve's reading, um, the the sin non of the of the spiritual adept is that he is or she is they're able to transcend uh, the, the material world, and you're saying well that's all well and good uh, when it's just between them and God. But but what happens? You know, it's one thing to fast yourself, but to make oth- others fast, it's one thing to martyr yourself. But what about causing everybody else to be a martyr?
0: Yeah, well, when I when I think of That's sort of the famous uh, the yeah. famous characters in the Talmud who who might be identified as Chassidim, for example, Hanina Ben Dosa, right. um, you know, we tend to see them. They they do interact with other people on, on very specific occasions. Kind of their paths intersect with the paths of other people, but but. Um, largely, uh, at least the way I think of them is as people who kind of live by themselves, perhaps with their family, who are also um, Hasidim, and and for whom the the way the world works, um, you know, they're, they're kind of walking in a different world from the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Hanina Bendosa lives on on a measure of karbs uh, all week long. You know, Hanina Bendosa reassures his daughter she shouldn't worry that she lit a bowl of vinegar instead of a bowl of oil for Shabbat because who says that just the way God makes oil burn, God can't make vinegar burn, right? They, they, they're living kind of in in, in in a world that kind of, they align with the world in a, in a way that that's quite different from the rest of us. These are not people like, um, you know, other kinds of rabbinic figures who take upon themselves you know, on windy days to go through the town and to make sure there's no shaky walls and, and rebuild those shaky walls. <laughs> These are people who are kind of you know, they're able to, to, to walk in a town and the walls aren't going to fall on them. It's, it's them. Um, and, and, and here we see a person really uh, Rabbi Shoban Levy engaged in a, a deeply political um, framework. Right? He is in this town as far as we know. Uh, he might be the leader of the town or the respected rabbinic figure um, in the town. Um, and uh, therefore he does what a, the tonatic source, right, the, the, the canonical source uh, tells him to do, the authoritative source tells him to do. and B he does something um, which uh, saves the town. And, and C is something that, that I uh, was noticing when I, when I reread this source is that he doesn't simply hand this person over right He sort of convinces him to allow himself mm-hmm. to be uh, to be handed over. So uh, it, it just it just feels to me that that um, you know would the expectation that Rabbi Yeshua Ben Levi act as a chassid also be an expectation that he um, disengage uh, politically? In other words, that he sort of sit there and do nothing, and either the whole town gets destroyed or kind of leave it to other people to engage in this political morass that he. Not do that. I mean, uh, can uh, you be a chassid? I guess. Uh, that, can you be it. a Hasid and be civically engaged? That's
1: what it. makes him an interesting character: is that he plays he plays in two worlds at once. He has a world in which apparently he has the power to hand over people, or to, to, or at least talk them into being handed over. He's a pro. He occupies an official position, and you're right. That doesn't fit. Occupying official positions doesn't fit with something like a stance of spiritual resistance or fearless spiritual resistance unless you belong to a group that thinks that's what life is about. On the other hand, he also, in his personal religious life, is able to transcend that dimension. Uh, And they don't fit neatly together. I think that creates a lot of problems. There's like Plato going off to Syracuse to try to create the ideal society. It doesn't go well to be a a, a philosopher and also a politician, although it's supposed to. I think here it's the same thing. What do you do with um, great religious figures who make demands on themselves and others that most people can not only can't live up to, but will be destroyed by living up to? Uh, how does how do you work out? I think I, I mean I feel that tension when I look at it. I feel bad for him. What's he supposed to say, to Eliot? What, what What do you want me to do? I'm, I'm in charge in the town. What should I have done instead? I think you are a good question. I'm not sure it's answered here.
2: We are um, unpacking the question before approaching an answer, and I think I think what's interesting here is I hear echoes of the first text we looked at together just to remind our listeners um, a central feature of that text was we had a chosid a pious person living in in and amongst regular people living in the same courtyard maybe in the same apartment block so to speak and the question that arose was if the regular people in the apartment block have a reasonable desire to uh, Build some sort of gatehouse or improve upon their privacy in some way or other. Uh, the question is, can they coerce the chassid who lives among them to do so, even though a Hasid really shouldn't, you know, uh, isolate himself from the the cries of the suffering? And one response to to what we saw in that text was, well, maybe the Hasid if he really wants to be a Hasid shouldn't be living <laughs> in and among the normal people. It doesn't. The, it uh, living. Uh, an embodied communal life as part of regular society isn't conducive to this life of piety and y- you have to be something more like a hermit if you really want to live uh, the life of a chassid um, and now we have R- 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 Rabbi sherban Ben who is supposed to be this liminal figure somewhere between the the, the classic archetypal chassid and, 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 and the political, the geopolitical figure um, and the, I, I don't, yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. I think we're sharpening the questions here.
0: Well, yeah, I, I think this raises another question, which is, you know, when when uh, Eliyahu reappears to Rabbi Levi after after uh, Rabbi Shuvan Levi fasts, and he says, "Well, lo siti, you know, didn't didn't I do just just what the source told me to do?" And he says, "Vezo mishnah ha chasidim." Right? Is this a, a mishnah mission of chasidim? Um, you know, it's not necessarily the case. In fact, I, I would say it's probably not the case. That Rabbi Shuvan Levi is. Um, is uh, you know uh, your your typical chassid. Um, he is somebody who we see other uh, rabbinic texts talking about Eliyahu hanging hanging out with him, but he's not necessarily your typical chassid. Um, and and so why I d- not? Well, I, I my sense is he's not he's not really identified as such. I think yeah. the um, you know again we d- we do have other stories about um, Eliyahu hanging out with him. Um, There's actually a, a really cool. Uh, story in, in the Babylonian Talmud in Makot, um, which um, is a very very short uh, story, which says that um, there was a um, uh, a person who was eaten by a lion three parasangs um, from where Rabbi Shuvan Levi live, and Eliyahu didn't talk to Rabbi Shuvan Levi for three days. So it's clear that he hangs out with your children maybe and that he has certain demands on him, yeah. right? That somehow he holds him um, he holds him to be at fault, right, for not having somehow Either prayed for or infused the town with with some sort of um, infused the surroundings or with some sort of you know ability to be protected from, from from these calamities. So so he certainly is somebody who Eliyahu has expectations of. But I, I but I don't know that he's ever described as you know, described as person like a Hanina ben Dosa or Nachum Ishgamzu who are these these people who I would describe as really living off the grid, right? Mm-hmm. Living in that kind of mm-hmm. alternate alternate reality. So so you know, one of the things I wonder when I read this text is when when Elio says to him, But but is this, you know, is this the Mishnah Hasidim? You know, how do you how do you read that? I right? do you read that as um, you know, there's kind of the regular people and they just need to do what these authoritative sources tell them. But then there's these kinds of special people, we call them Hasidim, and they have to hold themselves accountable to something else. Or is Elio saying something somewhat different, which is that these authoritative sources kind of give us a baseline, but anyone, anybody, um, might aspire, or from Elio's perspective, right, should aspire, But certainly you, Rabbi Shobhan Levi, should aspire, to go beyond that. And l- let's forget even the specifics of this case here, right? You know, this is Mishnah Hasidim something that um, would would seem to apply just to kind of be very, very particular people um, who uh, either kind of are different or who decide to hold themselves in a different way. Um, or is Mishnah Hasidim suggesting that all of us, all of us readers, right? All of us people um, ought to aspire to something beyond and the baseline that the text gives us. How were you How are you reading that? And that's that? a
1: shift from the approach I, I was taking before, which mm-hmm. had to do with it being about the nature of religious experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now we've moved away from the, the tension in his own religious experience be- between um, that kind of almost messianic demand that's made um, versus the, the, his experience of being responsible as a member of, he said, who lives on the grid and has responsibilities. Now we've moved away from what it's like to live out his kind of a life to a general question of um, whether there does exist some kind of set of sort of Mishnat Chassidim rules, which are at a higher level than those that most people live with. Um, and that's a... Um
0: yeah, actually, I'm, I was I was asking a different question. I think that's a great question, too, right? Does, does the term Mishnah Chassidim suggest that there is a kind of a of a body, not necessarily a written body of material, but some sort of a body of material that Eliyahu could identify. Right, right. that's <laughs> that what is, that is a kind were of, asking. I was asking something more basic, which is that, um, and this is something that comes up you know, in Maimonides and, and other thinkers' discussions of Midat Hasidut um, in general. Right. Is it that um, kind of, you know, you and me and many of us kind of live the regular life, and if we do what the um, Mishnah and Tosefta and our other sources say uh, we imagine like a bishoven lady that we've done exactly as we should do and we have kind of fulfilled the religious life. But there's some other people out there like Haneda Mendoza who's who, you know, for them, right, there's a different set of expectations, right, possibility mm-hmm. A. Or possibility B is no, that mm-hmm. the notion of Mishnah Hasidim is suggesting that um, there's the standard Mishnah, right, the body of you know authoritative texts, um, and that for all of us, that is merely putting out a baseline, so that if you do what it says, you can check, you fulfilled your obligation, you got you got credit for that for that. Um, but that Mishnah Chasid is suggesting that for all of us, right, the standard Mishnah is simply a baseline, and for all of us. Um, uh, Judaism is presenting a kind of an aspirational model where all of us ought to challenge ourselves to aspire to something beyond, right? To a kind of midat uh, chasidut. It,
2: it seems to me um, that this text could be read to support um, either conception, what you call conception A and conception B. I can put it this way: Elijah the prophet clearly seems to be presented as subscribing to the view you call it conception B that everyone really should aspire to live up to standards that go well beyond the baseline set forward by Jewish law so Jewish law says you should do X you do X Elijah can come around and still be disappointed with you even if you're not being presented as the the canonical chassid Elijah still expects of you, you know. so we could read that Elijah as an expectation of all of us it's no defense to say I'm sorry I'm not a chassid you should aspire to that but even if that's Elijah's view that's not necessarily the view of, of, of the story so to speak, of the narrator here in the story is Elijah being rational here or reasonable in holding uh, R- R- Rabbi Shrivan Levy to these higher standards in this circumstance which comes back to an earlier question you asked us Dewey, because if it turns out that the highest um, degree of piety here Requires washing your hands of leadership positions and and not doing anything leaving it to others to do the dirty work maybe allowing everyone to get killed because you're not willing to stand in the fray well maybe you should get your hands dirty and Elijah might not visit you anymore because you won't be a Chosid but maybe in the eyes of the Gemara that's the better option here in, in, in this circumstance it makes me wonder maybe there are lots of different types of Mishnayot there's the Mishnah you know the regular Jewish law, the baseline there's the Mishnah the Chassidim which is this thing that Yeshua Ben Levi is not living up to here and maybe there's other types of Mishnah like the Mishnah of the Leader the <laughs> Mishnah of the Melech, the Mishnah of the General the Mishnah of the so and so and they are conflicting, competing values it's not possible to be all things at once and in this instance Yeshua Ben Levi had to desert Chassidut in favour of a different value
0: Right, you you raise an interesting point, which is this juxtaposition of Eliyahu with the Chassid the Mishnah Chassidim, which again we saw. Uh, we saw in our first uh, in our first text as well the text of of the gatehouse. In other words, I think what you're suggesting is um, that Eliyahu has a particular expectation, and that might I would add might have something to do with Eliyahu. Eliyahu is right the chasid kind of in, in the sense that I described it before. You know, Eliyahu appears on the scene in in the Book of Kings. You know, out of Nowhere, right? He's not a person with a family. He's not a person with a tribe. He's not, you know, when he, when when he appoints his disciple uh, Elisha, and Elisha, you know, decides to say goodbye to his family, who almost turns his back on him at that point. But he's not somebody who's who's connected to the people, or to the family, or to a place, right? Uh, he's he's a person who, in fact, uh, you know. Uh, Always, kind of appear. You never even know where he's going to be. You know, mm-hmm. he's that unrooted that he can be at all of our seders and yeah. sado Seder <laughs> uh uh When he meets the prophet Ovadia, uh, Ovadia says, "You know, if if, if 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 I go away and come back, you're not going to be here anymore." You know, he's 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 so not in a place. He's he certainly not living in a gated community.
2: He really transcends because
0: of so, so what what I'm what I'm hearing uh, you suggest, Sam? I think uh, tell me if, tell me if this is where where you were going, um, is that. Uh, there's the text, what you might call the narrator or, or, or the text, and then there's specifically the choice of putting uh, of putting these uh, reprobations or rejections in the mouth um, of Eliyahu, um, and, and therefore what we could say is this says something about what Eliyahu's standard, not just for Rachel but perhaps for all people might be. And that Eliyahu's standard, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time there might be in fact other kinds of standards, other kinds of competing standards, no less um, compelling and, and perhaps situationally. Right, the text is suggesting that we have the Mishnah, uh, we have Eliyahu's Mishnah Chasidim, and perhaps other things, and in any given situation, both, both in terms of the situation that life presents us um, and in terms of perhaps how we see ourselves operating within the world. Um, we might um, feel compelled to, to act according to one or another of those kind of mishnahs, mm-hmm. those, those sets of,
1: of mm-hmm. teachings. I still hear a certain thing that I would like to question. Um, you're pretty upfront about it, Sam, when you, when you say dirty hands, maybe they mm-hmm. should get involved. Um, there may be life situations in which the appropriate thing is to listen to the voice of Eliyahu. Um, and somebody could man- I'm going to tell a, st- a very well known story about um, uh, a young kipper in Auschwitz in which they lined up all these starving people and filled bowls full of steaming soup. They, could, they had nothing to eat virtually most of the time. And here they are lining up, the, and the Germans deliberately line it up so that this soup is in front of them and invite them to eat. And they stand an entire day, atheists as well as believers, and refuse to drink a bit of, of that soup. People who, on any other yom kippur, might have in fact drunk, we refuse to do it because there's a dimension of spiritual resistance, which, in some situations, it's not a question of getting your hands. At that point, one needs to stand up for spiritual for spiritual resistance against it. There are people, I think, who think of all of life as like that. And you right, right. Maybe that's too much to think that all of life is resistance against the demands of an, un- an ethically unfair world. But there are limit situations. Which people are called upon to do something which they could find a technical justification for avoiding, well, okay, so and I mean it's not a, and say, well, I, you know, I just it, it, there are a lot of different questions involved here, etc. Whereas the reality is, the voice of Leo would say, like he says here, okay, you can do that, but it's not just a question of getting your hands dirty. You are not responding to the real spiritual demand of this situation. So I'm
2: not, uh, I'm not denying that there are times in our lives where we are called upon by all sorts of voices. To transcend uh, mundane considerations and even to go further, you know, from a religious Jewish perspective, even to go further than the demands of Jewish law. Like, like the Ramban famously says, it's possible to be a Naval Birshut by whilst keeping the laws of the Torah, it's completely possible to still be a pretty reprehensible human being. Sometimes we're called upon to do more. I recognize that. Um, and sometimes, yes, a type of spiritual resistance is called for. My question is, that if, 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 if the if the Talmud wants to illustrate that virtue, and I agree with you that's a virtue, this is a strange story with which to illustrate oh, it, because boy. the collateral damage in terms of all of the innocent people who may end up dead by taking this spiritual stance, it's one thing to take a spiritual stance when you're the person who's going to go hungry, but, but to enforce that upon others. Um, so to, I want to come back to what Devorah's Bro- uh, De presentation of The View reminds me of a, an ethical philosopher called uh, Susan Wolfe a very uh, influential paper, provocative paper called Moral Saints in which she argues she'd hate to live in a world in which everyone was a moral saint because sainthood, and this is, this is piety um, she said who, who would have the time to practice violin? Because everyone would be in the soup kitchen, twenty-four hours a day, or whatever. Who would develop talent, artistic talents, musical talents, uh, uh, literary talents? Who would who would develop their backhand? Who would? Said, and we'd live in a world that was so devoid of kind of color. Uh, because you can't you can't really justify doing anything else. And and the 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 picture she comes up with is there are many many values that we live our life as a response to. There's the ep- there's the calls of ethics. There's also the calls of spirituality, and and sometimes the call of spirituality is, is is harder. It calls louder, and the right thing to do is to act in spiritual resistance. But there are other but there are other calls too. There are other calls too.
0: So so, so Sam, in terms of the the article that, mm-hmm. that you Susan just met, Wolf, Susan yeah. Wolf. I would just want to know from Susan Wolf, um, or from your reading of Susan Wolf, um, so am I the one that serves in the soup kitchen while you practice violin because I have that inbuilt moral sensibility so he or because I'm not particularly good at violin yeah. what What makes it me
2: good. who it spends
0: my day in the soup kitchen and you who practices violin? Good.
2: and, and she talks about Mother Teresa as her example of someone who lives the life of a moral saint and she certainly recognizes the world would be a much worse place if it didn't have people like that too, right? She does want, she doesn't want the
0: same. What I'm asking is, what does it mean people like that?
2: Right, right. Is it
0: because, is she imagining that Mother Teresa somehow, you know, feels that this is her calling and therefore she is fulfilling her calling the way you are playing violin? So,
2: so she's li- she, Susan Wolff gets a little bit vague here. She talks about what she would call a metamoral theory. And what she means by a metamoral theory is, and there are all these competing values. I could be the chosid, I could be the melech, I could be the, the, the rabbi, I could be the teacher. All these competing values. How do I choose which one's calling on me the loudest? And so that's what you'd need, a meta, a, meta, a, a meta-moral theory to determine. Uh, rabbi Sachs has this, this cute phrase in To Heal the Fractured World, where he says, where where what you are best at meets what you're needed most for and what you enjoy most that's the place where God wants you to be and, 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 and um, she says Susan Wolf says you can't really come up with an algorithm that will say this, my theory tells you that Svi should be the violinist and Vora should be the saint and Sam should be a theory. She, she, she appeals to intuitions here that basically people people have to develop a sense for what their taf kid is in life, their role is in life and have to uh, I, I would hope we can I, th- I would hope we can do better than that and develop a theory. But, <laughs> but my you my ask me what she says <laughs> and that's what she says. <laughs> my problem
0: with that is 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 that it leaves out the normative. In other words, I, I think again not having read her work yeah. that that there is kind of hidden within it the notion of a kind of individualism of, of, of self-realization mm-hmm. um, and um, you know i think of, of, of really righteous people by which i don't mean hasidim mm-hmm. in the way i described it to you be before but i mean people who i consider to be truly righteous and i'll give a i'll give an example actually um i lived a few years ago in and, and the rabbi of uh, the newer part of the town is um uh mm-hmm. um, and when we moved to Shfut it was days before the disengagement from gaza and uh, right after the disengagement, many of the displaced families were in uh, hotels in, in Jerusalem. everyone went to visit them. and um, soon determined that in addition to the very specific needs that they had of the moment, um, that a really critical need uh, was for people to um, have employment. Um, that for people who had worked their whole lives in agriculture or whatnot, to so all of a sudden to find themselves not just without home and without community. Uh, and really, kind of, you know, relegated to the sidelines in all those ways, but very specifically to not have uh, purposeful work and everything that means for their own selfhood and their role and their family. And so he started an organization um, to help people, um, you know, reclaim their lives in those ways. Now, I remember people always would say, saying, well, What? I mean, he's the, he's the biggest yeshiva buffer. The idea of him engaging socially, it's, it's mm-hmm. so funny. Who would ever think that, that mm-hmm. Yassimimimon would do this? Is what people were saying. And the fact is, was this that combination of things um, that that you mentioned, Rabbi Sacks said, or was this a very um, religious person? By which I mean a person who feels himself under strong religious obligation, like right, Seeing a need and saying whether or not I'm, you know, mm-hmm. that person with that passion and ability, um, the need of the moment, what Shlomo Kabach would say, the mitzvah of the moment, yeah. uh, right? The command that I am under, right, is is to make this happen. Well.
2: I think you could go two ways here, but I think you could. Cert- I think you could certainly defend Wolf's picture against the charge that she's ignoring the normative. She's not suggesting that all we should do is figure out how best we can achieve our first-person individual flourishing. Rather, she's saying we. You know, I, I think you could you could marry in Rabbi Saxe's idea. You can say she's asking you. You have to confront the moment, but you also have to look at what your individual talents and proclivities are and figure out what you're being called to do at a given time. Now, your suggestion is that Rav Rahman could have been doing something better because he's, you know, or something different, and that these weren't where his skills were, but the, the mitzvah of the moment was calling him. I suggest maybe the fact that he heard that call suggest that the way he was calibrated the way he was the, the, his gait as a human being was that was that um, actually this nexus of skills passions desires and whatever really was was lined up in that place um, and he did tremendous you know he did a tremendous job for it
0: but this raises a, a, a social and normative and educational question. Mm. Yeah, I,
1: did, I, wanna, I still want to insist on a footnote, that that is not what our text happens to be about. It's about a limit situation in which people are demanding. One we're going be, to talk about that. That thing. is not the same situation that we, we're, we're gonna describing.
0: Do that, we're going to do that in the next yeah, podcast. I just want to make sure that we this about general
1: questions. discourses yeah. that you guys have gone no, off no, on. It's no, not in, about in the the, our text. We're going to talk about the specifics of that in the next
0: podcast. The question Sam was raising this article relationship with uh, the question of is there a Mishnah that's aspirational for everybody or are there different kind of codes my right, codes of uh, behavior uh, or, or, or different kinds of aspiration that different people is are subject to. That, is that was the question.
2: Is there a yeah. sense in which you could read the Gemara to be saying, yes, he didn't live up to Mishnah Hasidim and that's okay, because he lived up to something else, right? Is that legitimate reading of this Gemara? Do we have to adopt Eliyahu's voice as the voice of the story, which is critical of him? Or can we say, no, that's Eliyahu's voice in the story, but there, you know, there are other. We clearly
1: voice. have a temperamental split. I agree with you that both readings are possible. Okay. You like that reading. Okay? <laughs> I don't like that reading. I like the voice of Eliel being a voice that should, should ring out clearly in a world that I think otherwise adopts far too many compromises and, 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 and doesn't see itself as required to do what it needs to do. So uh, you're right. I can see the <laughs>
0: So I do feel that that we should probably spend our next session together um, focusing on the specifics uh, of this case and on the the Talmudic discussion of it, and I wanted to to end this by sort of fact-checking some of the different approaches that have been put out here about Mishnah HaChassidim. Sam, if I understand you correctly, and and tell me if if this isn't how it is, I I would sort of, in order to characterize what you're saying, think about kind of what happens the day after the day after uh, Rabbi Rishua Levi has this conversation with Eliyahu. And if I understand you correctly, the way, the way I would play it out is uh, that Rishua ben Levi says, well Eliyahu, I hear your point. You're quite right. What I did was not Mishnah ha I acted according to a different norm. Um, the norm of the Mishnah, which in this case is the norm of how people who are uh, engaged uh, in their town, who take responsibility for their town, have to behave. And um, it's been really nice knowing you, Eliyahu. It's it's been it's been wonderful spending time together. And I understand that
1: I'm on a different path. Yeah.
0: Would you say that's fair? That's a fair?
1: a fair that's that's a fair reading.
0: And, and Svea, I think, wh- what would your next day be?
1: Uh, my next day is I don't know what his next day would be because it's a uh, there is a part of there th- it's w- there's one way to look at just the way Sam outlined it to say that th- you know I really. Maybe I should go back and just say, you know, this kind of life is not for me. What's for me is running the town and taking the responsibility. And on the other hand, I will never sleep a comfortable night straight because there will be a little voice that once in a while whispers in my ear and says, but you don't hear Elio anymore, and that's really important in the world to be able to hear the voice of the messianic voice of Elio.
2: That's a very fair reading of how of how I would uh, construe the next day, given what I was saying. You know, maybe to speak for some of the things that had said earlier, Maybe we could write uh, uh, an alternative ending from so to speak, Spee's point of view. in, in Spee you can tell me what you think of this, or you can offer a, an alternative reading. Um, maybe the next day uh, surely maybe says, oh, you know what, I was right, um, if this ever happens again, and the Romans gang up on us and say, "You know, "Give us one of yours, so-and-so who's been specified whatever, give us one of yours," I'm going to say time for spiritual resistance I'm a chassid and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say no and even if it means the entire town gets wiped out then so be it because Eliyahu has taught me my lesson now that's not my reading but that that's, that's, seems to be the reading that's being pitted against me
0: I thought that that was going to be more and I realized I can't be, if I'm going to be a chassid then yeah. I can't be the one to take responsibility. no
2: that's out. the third reading
0: I thought the third
2: reading. Was well, no, no, no. So the fourth no, no. reading. Mine is the, yeah, fourth, the fourth, reading. Oh, no, reading. Yeah. fourth reading. Yeah, the third reading is so now you can say yeah, you can say yeah. Okay, so finish okay. Stay, stay the lessons. Okay, say over the left Um. So th- so that seems to be the, the view you know the reading of this Talmudic story that's being pitted against my view my view in which Eliyahu says okay I don't want to be, uh, uh, y- Yosher Ben Levi says okay I don't want to be a, a chassid. So either he says I don't want to uh, I don't want to be a chassid I want to be a leader. Or perhaps he'll say, no, I'm going to be a Hasid. I'm going to let everyone die next time, because we're going to stand up in spiritual resistance.
0: Or perhaps,
2: mm-hmm.
0: what, what, you know, to, to take that position a little bit further, perhaps what he would really be saying, uh, if, if he were to take uh, Elio's approach is, um, if I'm going to be the Hasid, then I can't be the one who makes decisions mm. for this town. I'm going to have to... advocate." Abdicate. Kind of abdicate, or or, or or live on my own, um, and let others who maybe are not Hasidim or don't hear Elio's voice, uh, mm. be the one who makes the decisions for this town.
1: Mm. Do you have a full th- three things? You know, uh, yes. I mean, what I really think is, I mean, you were right, I did set it up so that, because yeah. I wanted to argue for spiritual sure. resistance, is that there's no way um, to dictate some one unique reading of this test is pushing on us in the direction. The, those three possibilities are all there. What all I would argue for is that whichever one at any given time a person lives out, they never give up hearing the voice of the other two. If you go off and say, I, I've given up the position as running the town, I've decided I have to be a Hasid, there should be a little voice that's always whispering in your ear. You understand, of course, that there are people there who depended on you and you let them down. And okay, the same way, if a person decides to stay there, he should always hear a voice that says, You understand that you you, col- you capitulated to, f- to a world that you might not have capitulated to. and
0: You've you got ended. to
1: feel the pain of the others. You've got to refuse to see the situation as defining just one. Way. The pain of not hearing Eliyahu's voice again should exactly. be a real pain. You exactly. actually should be a real pain,
0: right? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because that, I think, brings us right back to the gatehouse with which we started. Right. right where there, too, we had a Mishnah and then we had this Hasid. And I think one could say the same thing uh, about that text that the the, the voice uh, of Eliyahu or the voice or, or the absence of Eliyahu's voice, so the presence of the Hasid um, does not necessarily mean that we don't uh, lock our gates uh, or live in communities, uh, but it does mean that we always have to wonder uh, whether we will be able to hear that voice, mm-hmm. the voice of Eliyahu or the voice mm-hmm. of the poor person mm-hmm. to crying at the gate.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drisha V'Chakira, the Drisha Chavruta podcast. To download more of our podcasts in Shi'arim, subscribe to our iTunes channel or go to www.drisha.org for more online and in-person learning opportunities. Drisha, Deep Learning, Committed Lives.